This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Warden's Watch, episode 106, 106, for the Fallen. And on this episode, during Police Week, Warden's Watch is highlighted game wardens, conservation officers, wildlife officers that have died in the line of duty. And this time, we are highlighting David Grove, Wildlife Conservation Officer for the state of Pennsylvania. We talked to Tom Gruel, who was the most senior Wildlife Commission Officer on scene that night. David was shot by an illegal night hunter who was also a felon in possession of a firearm that shouldn't have had one. Reminds me of the Kevin Bear story where Kevin was shot again by another felon in possession of a firearm, again, that shouldn't have had one. I'd like to read a few things going into this uh, podcast. Uh, I went to the Officer Down site, and there was a few things that touched me. I was going to just read one, but I had uh, two that kind of uh, touched my heart. So um, as an officer, for sure. I was proud to be a part of the caravan for the Pennsylvania Game Commission officers and Pennsylvania State Police Troopers that escorted Officers Grove Body from Lehigh Valley Hospital to the Gift of Life Foundation in Philadelphia. In the spirit of a true American hero, Officer Grove was an organ donor and tissue donor. His final gift will enable many others to heal, and he will live on in the bodies of many grateful people. Thank you, Pennsylvania State Police, for your support and your top-notch investigation and speedy arrest of the suspect, and your escort to Philly and then to the home to Adams County. The real irony in his passing is that he wrote an article for the Pennsylvania Game News, our agency's magazine, entitled, A Shot in the Dark about an investigation into a nighttime poaching incident. It was published in the November issue. My deepest condolences to Officer Grove's family. He has been in my thoughts since I got the dreaded phone call Friday morning. Please know that he died doing something that in our unique band of law enforcement professionals is passionate about being a guardian for the wild creatures, wilderness, and the people that are sworn by duty to protect. Rest in peace, brother. I know you'll be watching over us out in the woods and on those dark, lonely back roads forever. 
Lieutenant Bertoni Whitehall Police and Deputy Wildlife Conservation Officer Pennsylvania Game Commission, November 16th, 2010. And that is on the Officer Down or the Officer Memorial page. Thank you, Lieutenant, for those words, and thank you for your service as well. Um, I think he touches uh, a lot of things that, as a game warden, he's right. We love what we do, and we love where we do it. And David was uh, a great example of that uh, protector that gave the ultimate sacrifice. The other one that really touched me, and this is the one I was just going to read, but uh, as a game warden, uh, Lieutenant Bertoni's uh, words touched me. And this touched me, and if you've listened to the Warden's Watch podcast on Memorial Week before, uh, we had uh, the honor of uh, interviewing Justin Hurst's uh, parents. Justin was a Texas game warden who was killed in the line of duty, gunned down, and Alan and Pat, uh, mostly Alan, but Pat uh, certainly, uh, <laughs> certainly, uh, I could hear her in the background uh, talking, and uh, you can on the podcast, and and bless your heart, Pat, I really appreciate that. Uh, Two parents that, you know, lost a child, but give back so much, as much as they can, to make his sacrifice not go in vain. And I'll read, as the parents of a fellow game warden who's killed by a poacher, our hearts go out to your family as another senseless killing has taken one of the best from our law enforcement family. There will always remain that giant hole in your heart that only those who have lost a child can seem to understand. Look to those around you, as well as your law enforcement family, in your time of grief. We are here for you. God be with you in this time of need. Pat and Alan Hurst, parents of Texas Game Warden Justin Hurst, end of watch, 317.07. So, and if you'd like to go back in the Warden's Watch archives, uh, that interview is there. And uh, this week I will uh, put it out on my social media too, uh, recapping the past uh, podcast we've done for Memorial, uh, the Law Enforcement Memorial Week. So, thank you for everybody that contributes to this week, as it's so important that we never forget. Thank you. Warden's Watch, episode 106. And this episode is our memorial episode. And this year we have gone to Pennsylvania to talk about Wildlife Conservation Officer David Grove. And here to talk about David is, you retired, I believe, as a Deputy Chief Tom, Tom Gruel. Uh, I, I retired as Deputy Executive Director. Okay, <laughs> that that that's a little up from uh, Deputy Chief. So, but uh, really, uh, thank you for your service, Tom, and thank you for joining us. And thank you, it's a pleasure. And tough subjects too, for sure. I mean, every year I do this officer uh, memorial podcast because I n- never want to forget. But I think you said it best. It's you know we don't want to forget, but it's difficult to remember. And David, I, I've been doing my research here, and he seems like the game warden's game warden. He sounds like that was probably his life goal was to be a game warden. He was, you know, and I'll, I'll be the first to admit, uh, I didn't know David very well. I did uh, some instruction at our training academy when David was a cadet. So I knew him from there. 
he was then assigned to the South Central region in Adams County. And uh, I did actually the last time I saw him, he was playing in the game commission holds an annual golf tournament Mm -hmm. and he had a team and played in the golf tournament and he was a lot of fun. Um, So I, it's maybe sad to say, but I feel like I know David much better now after his untimely death uh, than I did when he was working for me. Mm, Because this has become pretty personal to you too, as you, had to deal with this incident pretty much, hasn't it? Yeah, it it was. You know, um, the chain of events that led to both David's murder and my involvement are somewhat unusual. Um, At the time, I was working uh, as the assistant uh, director of our Bureau of Law Enforcement, Mm -hmm. and uh, I was at the time supervising our undercover unit was my primary responsibility, but I was also the uh, emergency management liaison for the Game Commission to the state, uh, the Pennsylvania Emergency Management Agency. So that's why I got, I was the first person to be contacted uh, when David was discovered that uh, that he was shot that night. Uh, They had called me at home probably within minutes of it occurring. And it was kind of unusual. So I was accustomed to getting phone calls from Pima at night. Um, In fact, at the time, there was a little joke in my family uh, that, you know, my kids would answer the phone and they'd say, Dad, it's Pima again. And it would be some really unimportant call and I'd make a call to an officer or a region and they'd handle it. But this night, it was very much different. Uh, I got the call. It was about, well, it was probably 11 p.m. Uh, it was on Veterans Day, uh, the holiday, November 11th. Uh, so everybody was off. It was a state holiday. And I, I was actually in bed. I had just come home from hunting in Maine uh, and uh, uh, with a, a bunch of other Pennsylvania game wardens and we had met up with uh, the Maine wardens and we were eider hunting up in Maine and I wasn't even supposed to be home that night uh, but the weather turned terrible and we decided to come home a day early so I had just driven home from Maine and uh, at 11 o'clock I was in bed when the phone rang and uh, my my son answered the phone and he said dad it's Pima and again, I just expected, you know, it was going to be some deer issue or some mm. other, you know, un- really unimportant wildlife related issue that they needed a hand with. And I, when I picked up the phone immediately, I could sense that this was not going to be just an ordinary call. And the, the person on the other end said, this is so-and-so. I don't even remember his name from the emergency management agency. And he said, were to inform you that there's been an officer involved shooting with one of your officers and he was killed. Now you can imagine what happens. My head is like spinning. Mm. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about all these things. And the first question that came to my mind naturally was, who is it? Mm. And so I asked him and I said, well, can you tell me who it was? And he wouldn't tell me. 
I don't know if he didn't know. I don't, but he would not tell me who it was. He would just tell me where it happened. And he gave me the address on Shriver Road uh, in Adams County, just outside of Gettysburg. Um, and he said, we need you to respond to the scene immediately. Well, I was an hour away. And on, I, like I said earlier, I was supervising our undercover unit and I was working a case. And so I had a beard and I didn't really, you know, look like an officer. So I just threw some clothes on. I got in my car and I started driving to the office, uh, which was on my way to the scene. And I started making phone calls. The first person I called was my supervisor at the time, who was our director of law enforcement, Rich Palmer. He was away at a hunting camp and had no cell service, so I, I didn't get a hold of him. And then I called our executive director. Well, he was away as well. I couldn't get him. So it was kind of on me. So I called uh, Jason Dukotsky, who today is our director of law enforcement. He was the only guy I could get. <laughs> and he had already knew. Uh, because as you know, in a small agency, when something mm. like this happens, even though it was a state holiday, word spread like wildfire. So we made arrangements to meet at headquarters and he was going to get in my car and we drove to Gettysburg from there. On the way to Gettysburg, which was, like I said, about an hour, I got a call from the Adams County Coroner's office and they said that um, they needed someone to go notify David's family because the suspect was still at large. They had a license plate number that David had called in before he was shot and a description of the vehicle. And they wanted to put it out on all the news stations. And they were afraid that David's family would hear this and put two and two together mm -hmm. and find out what happened without being formally notified. So we're driving down, they called, and so now I have a decision to make because I'm supposed to go to the scene. Uh, I also need someone to go to David's parents' house and notify them. So at the time, I was also the manager of our, our, our uh, uh, critical incident um, peer contact team. The, the interesting part was we also had officers who were out working that night, dispatch was closed because at that time when it was a state holiday, our dispatch uh, offices didn't work. Now that we've changed that since, but we had officers responding to the scene because they had heard about it and we had no radio communications with the state police and they were the investigating agency. So it was kind of a, a very chaotic you know, officers are driving to the scene because they know that the suspect's still at large. They want to help find them. I need somebody to go to talk to David's parents and notify them. Uh, and I, I had never met them. I didn't know where they live. So uh, eventually I wound up talking to uh, another officer who was a friend of David's. And we decided that we would meet and he would take me over to David's parents' house, and I was going to do the notification to them. We knocked on David's parents' door at about 3 o'clock in the morning. And you can imagine when you have uh, two, actually there were three of us uh, that knocked on their door that night. They later had told me that when they saw us pull up in the marked vehicle, 
that they thought it was David coming because I guess it was not unusual for David to stop by at all hours of the <laughs> night. He was very close with his family. They're a very tight-knit family, and he would go in there and tell them about some of his experiences on the job, and they really were very interested in what he did and very supportive of him. It was a very tight-knit family. And they had later told me that they thought it was David when we pulled into the driveway. We knocked on the door at 3 a.m. and unfortunately had to deliver that that terrible news to them that what happened. Mm. Um, and then, you know, you can imagine you know, how difficult that was. No, uh, absolutely. Um, that's something that parents never, ever, ever want to hear. They almost know it when they answer the door and see you standing there at 3 a.m. in the morning. Yeah, yeah. Mm. You know it's not good. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. So from that point, did you respond to the scene? Um, I'd already, I, I had actually went to the scene before I went to David's parents' house. Okay. When I got to the scene, I was the first, I believe I was the first game commission officer to arrive on scene. When I got there, PSP, Pennsylvania State Police, had just their uh, evidence processing unit had just arrived on scene they were setting up big spotlights when i got there david's car was parked on in the on shriver road of road which it was kind of rural but it was a road where there were some very kind of big houses with big properties and they were spread apart pretty far and it was just outside gettysburg national battlefield so i pulled up and the one, the sergeant there, state police said, do you want me to walk you through the scene? And mm. I said, yeah, sure. Uh, so he did. It was un, it was kind of unnerving um, because when I walked, his light, his car was shut off, but the lights were still on. His gun was laying on the ground next to an open door. Uh, his glasses were laying there on the ground. There were bullet holes all through the car shell casings there were in this particular incident david fired 16 rounds and the uh his assailant i believe fired 12 rounds something like that there were over 25 rounds exchanged between the two of them which mm. that's that's a lot of rounds in a, in, a, in a police shooting but you know it was kind of uh, surreal when you walk through that scene so i did do that just quickly before I, and then I, I asked Jason Dukoski to remain at the scene. And then by that time, uh, Travis Pugh, who also uh, worked in our bureau, showed up. And uh, the two of them were going to coordinate as our officers were responding. They were going to try and coordinate them into making sure it didn't conflict with what the state police were doing at the time, uh, because they... The state police investigators had arrived and they were trying to ping uh, the suspect. They knew who he was because David did everything right hmm. on his vehicle stop. He called it in. Uh, he ran the plate. He said they were armed. He said he was doing a, a felony vehicle stop. Unfortunately, at one time, the last transmission David said to county radio was that he was going to wait in his vehicle for backup to arrive before he approached the vehicle. We'll never know exactly why that didn't happen 
because backup arrives after two, I believe, if I'm trying to remember this, but I'm pretty sure I'm pretty accurate here, two minutes and 35 seconds after his last transmission, backup, a local township PD arrived on scene to find David laying in the, behind his vehicle dead. And as you know, Wayne, for a conservation officer, for backup to be available within two minutes mm. and 35 seconds, that really is unusual because for where we work and how we work to have backup that uh, Mm. close and that available. But we'll we'll never really know why Mm. uh, that he changed his mind and decided to approach uh, the suspects before backup arrived. Yeah. Can can you walk us through what happened? So it we had to kind of piece this together. The state police did an excellent job. Um, they were, I can't say enough about, you know, their investigation and, and how they kept us surprised and kept us part of the whole incident as it progressed. But here's what happened. There were two people in the vehicle that night, the suspect's vehicle. They had been hunting at a, a local camp that uh, one of their relatives owned. They were drinking. They, I, Christopher Johnson... Uh, he was a convicted felon, uh, not to possess firearms. He had a long history of problems with the law. And they, him and his other friend, who was a little younger than him, um, they were, spent the entire day hunting and drinking while they were hunting. I, they were both intoxicated, I'm sure. They decided they didn't see anything while hunting. They were going to go out and poach some deer. So David had some suspicions about some poaching that had been going on in the Gettysburg National Battlefield. So that night, even though it was a holiday, he used uh, some pre-approved overtime that he had to go out and work. And he was by himself. So he was parked probably within a mile of where they they poached a deer that night, and he heard the shot. Hmm. When he heard the shot, he radioed in to county radio. Like I said, Game Commission dispatch was closed, so he only had access to county radio, but it was great communications. Hmm. He had Adams County control. So he radios in that he's working his location. He heard a shot. He sees a spotlight working, and he's going to proceed into that area. When he gets there, he he finds them. It wasn't hard. He, he got on him right, right away. He attempts to do a vehicle stop, and he's radios in that they're not stopping, but they're not really trying to elude him. They're, they're not, you know, it's not a high-speed chase. They're just going normal speed, but they're not stopping. And after about two minutes, he said he radios in that they've stopped on, on Shriver Road uh, in kind of a desolate, it's not, it's not real remote. There are houses within maybe a couple of hundred yards, but it's a very dark road. There are no street lights, no sidewalks. It's a very wooded field farm type uh, lane. And uh, he radios in that he has them stopped. There's two individuals. He calls in the plate and he says there's firearms in the vehicle because he can see them passing a, a rifle around. Uh, And he says he's going to wait for backup until backup arrives. And that's the last we ever hear from David. Mm. So 
here's what we have pieced together from, although they were uncooperative once they were both discovered who they were, here's what we kind of, what the investigation revealed is that for some reason, David had the driver get out of the vehicle. He had him throw the keys out the window, turn the vehicle off, and then he had him exit the vehicle and walk backwards to towards David's patrol vehicle into in front of the headlights. When he got there, from what we can determine is David try was attempting to handcuff him. And when he put the first handcuff on, David felt him pull out a firearm from his front of his waistband and spin around. And this, we've got some of this from uh, the accomplice that night. Mm-hmm. Uh, all he said is he heard David yell, don't do it, don't do it. And then there were a, a, a number of shots. So kind of forensics and the investigation revealed that they, they, there was, there's a huge exchange of gunfire. It started within a foot of each other. And we believe that David was shot uh, one time at that range in his upper thigh. And the suspect was shot twice by David. Now, this is this guy has at this night had to be one of the luckiest persons I've ever known. One shot hit a cell phone in his pocket and it deflected into his hip and caused very minimal damage, Mm. not not even enough to knock him down. Uh, And that when he was apprehended, they took him to the hospital. They treated it and he was released within an hour. The other round hit a a knife that he had on his belt and completely deflected and didn't do any damage. (laughs) So then what we surmise happened is when David got shot in the upper thigh is that he fell down and he lost his firearm. And when he got up, he was taking cover to the rear of his vehicle. And uh, at that time, before he got around the rear of the vehicle, uh, he took around to his the back of his neck, and, and it, it, it was a fatal shot. Mm. No, that's horrible. Yeah. So, and then the suspect runs off. So, so the suspect runs off, and the suspect, he, his firearm was a Colt 911, 45 caliber. And uh, we later found out that, you know, he fired uh, at least, I I can't remember the exact number, but it was more than one magazine. So we know that he had to reload Hmm. during that exchange. And that actually was critical for the prosecution because they tried to blame it on David, say he shot first during the trial. But that showed intent. Hmm. Like when he was reloading, um, that helped prove that he was his intent was to kill David because he had fired so many rounds and actually had to reload, you know, to to continue shooting at David. Um, So he after that, he gets in his truck and they drive away. And the passenger, uh, his name was Lauman. So he this guy's panicking and he knows what's happened. And he tells the shooter that I want out off. 
And so he does. He drops them off about two miles down the road. And he has a cell phone. And this guy calls his girlfriend, who lives about 30 minutes away, and says, you got to come get me. She comes and picks him up. He goes home and goes to bed. Doesn't tell anybody. Doesn't call the police. Doesn't tell anybody what happens. He just goes to bed. The suspect, who now is driving away, he's got one cuff on his wrist. And this is how lucky he is. He drives down to a a remote gas line about maybe 10 miles away. He gets out and he rests his wrist on a log and he takes his forty-five and he shoots the cuff off his wrist. He doesn't get hurt. Like you and I Hmm. could not do that without probably blowing our hand off. And he shoots the cuff off and it comes off. He then says that he runs through the woods taking the firearms. He had a twenty-two and and the the Colt 911. As he's running through the woods, he throws them in the woods. They were never recovered. Hmm. Here we are, what? Uh, 13, going on 13 years later, those firearms have never recovered. And I can't tell you the effort that we put in to try and recover those firearms. We had, we had a cadet class in our game warden academy. We spent days searching. We had canines. We had volunteers. We had PSP. We spent a week trying to recover those firearms and we unfortunately could never find them and you would think 13 years later that maybe a hunter would find them right and 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 recover them but to to my knowledge they've never been recovered so anyway he discards the gun he comes out on a highway and he starts to hitchhike now by now the state police know who he is They have his cell phone and, you know, they're pinging his cell phone. So they know a general description. They know where this camp now they've they've gone to this other person's house. They found out that he was with them and they go and interview the accomplice. And at first he he doesn't say anything. He's he's claiming he doesn't know anything. Finally, they get it out of him after several trips i believe to his house Mm. and he tells them that they were at this camp so they suspect the suspects heading back to the camp so they get the swat team and they're now at the camp waiting for him to arrive because they think that maybe he's where he's going and uh, he is and he hits the he he got picked up by an elderly gentleman who didn't have any idea who he was or what he had done and he pulls into the camp and the SWAT team just take him down. Uh, and he, he, he gets apprehended without any incident. And he's arrested that day and arraigned. Um, so I, I bet that uh, the old buck that picked him up was uh, probably regretting that. I'm sure. Yeah, actually, it worked out best, though, because who knows? If he didn't get picked up, we might not have been able to get him so quickly. That, that, that's uh, right. But, but he, he was he had a shock sitting there. I mean, he. So he was on the on the loose maybe from 11 p.m. till about maybe 11 a.m. the next day, about mm. 12 hours. Wow. But that's actually pretty 
good apprehension time frames for yeah. for fleeing. So yeah, state police they they really did a great they, job. They did. They did uh, the tracking of the phone, uh, the the planning of going back to the camp. That was that was really smart to be set up and ready to go there um, yeah. for sure. Yeah, no, they certainly worked hard and worked fast. Within twelve hours, having him in custody is you know certainly proof of that. And then the aftermath. I think some of these interviews. I know I talked about. Uh, you know, Justin Hurst, and I had talked to his family, the, the trial, the trial is probably uh, the most uh, impactful thing for a family. I mean, certainly losing your loved ones, probably the most impactful, but you know, now, now you have to go through a trial, which. Uh, so, um, I forget the exact time frame. It was over a year, maybe two years until he actually went to trial. Mm-hmm. It was charged with capital murder with possibility of death sentence because of the publicity this became david's murder became a national news event Mm. um and i don't know if you recall this but at his funeral um which we his parents requested the full you know ceremonial type burial we rented or we used a high school gymnasium Uh, there were thousands of people there game wardens from all over the country um i i actually was uh helping coordinate the the funeral detail as well and one of the most moving things that happened (laughs) i do get emotional sometimes yeah as you should was um the support that both david's family and the game commission received during the the two weeks after his death was some of the most inspiring things i've ever experienced Mm -hmm. yeah yeah sorry no nope Totally understand a police funeral is incredibly moving. We we received, I mean, cards and letters and gifts from across. I would get the the mail uh, several days after David's death with just bags full of sympathy cards and Mm. gifts and mementos from police agencies, wildlife agencies, dispatch centers from all over the country it was even though it was probably one of the most horrific things i dealt with in my career it was that part of it was like so uh inspiring and you know people really cared about you know what happened Mm. Um, so we did the the fuel the full um the fuel the full you know ceremonial detail for a line of duty death um there were probably i i'm i'm estimating a, a thousand game wardens there uh it was really truly a moving experience and uh i remember uh from the high school to where uh the grave site was was, a, was about a five mile trip uh and i remember i was one of the lead cars uh behind the hearse and um, other officers were e- are calling me me on my cell cell phone saying when the hearse was pulling into uh, the gates at the the uh, grave site, 
there still were cars that had police cars and game worn cars that still had not left the parking lot uh, of the um, the high school where the the eulogy was held because the the procession was over five miles long. Hmm. It was really inspiring. Um, there were people standing on the sidewalks in the town. It was it was something. It was they had American flags. And it was it was really it was really moving. It really was. That was uh, a big deal, and we finally got that taken care of. It was funny because David's parents had wanted a a, a specific pastor to preside over the the gravesite ceremony, and uh, he couldn't be there until about four o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, so you can imagine what happened when uh this whole process you know it was like a three-hour uh service we were actually in the dark with over a thousand people at the gravesite. we had to coordinate with lights uh and parking and it was and the community came together and you know the ambulance and the fire departments and it was really uh it was really a, a combined effort with so many different agencies to make it uh a a funeral worth showing what david's sacrifice meant mm, that's very very well put funerals like this are, are very touching and i think uh most people in the community you know, are very sensitive to that and they support their game wardens, their conservation officers, their police officers, their fire and their EMS people and dispatchers. Right. I think that's... So then the, 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 the trial, it was funny because there was so much publicity, the, uh, the defense argued that they could not get a jury of unbiased people out of Adams County. Mm. So... They made a motion to actually they wanted to move the entire trial to another county. Well, the judge didn't allow that. But he, what he did allow was for a jury to be selected from another county and to be brought in to uh, Adams County. With the, the, the courthouse was in downtown Gettysburg. Hmm. Um, so we had the trial. Um, there were. Probably 20 game wardens, if not more, at the trial every single day, uh, including David's parents. Uh, at the time, our, uh, I, by the time the tra trial rolled around, I believe Matt Ho was our executive director uh, at the time, and he came to the trial every day, and he actually, we, we, sh we shuttled uh, David's family back and forth to the um, courthouse every day. They stayed in a local hotel. Um, the, the victim, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the person who helps victims out of the county courthouse. The victim witness advocate? Great. Yeah. Yes, the victim's advocate. Um, you know, she was with them. So um, there was a lot of support throughout the entire trial. I attended every day of the trial myself. Um, and it took about a week. Um, the great thing was, uh, the jury, uh, well, before I, I get there, the defense tried to put the blame, the shooting on David. Uh, they tried to say that he fired first. Nobody's going to know 
who fired first. To tell you the truth, if David fired first, he should have got a medal for being the guy mm. who fired first because uh, the way it went down is, you know, David did extremely well to get any rounds off. Right. Um, so uh, they tried to portray that the, the, the defendant had all these mental health issues and that his father, you know, mistreated and abused him and he had all these issues. He was on depression medicine and all these other uh, inconsequential excuses. So after about a week trial, um, went to jury deliberations and uh, the great thing was they deliberated three hours um, before finding him guilty on all charges, um, mm. which that made us feel really good. That right. It was, you know, not it wasn't, a, a, you know, a hung jury or it wasn't any uh, long deliberations. It took them three hours to convict him. Mm -hmm. So after that, um, of course, the sentencing uh, hearing took place, uh, and that was a, that happened. Oh, I don't, I forget. Maybe in a, a month or two later, and uh, the sentencing hearing, the same thing. It went on for a few days. They called a bunch of witnesses. Um, they challenged our training program a little bit, but uh, after it, it took them one hour, I believe it was one hour to sentence him to death. And I remember, I remember the uh, when they announced that verdict out of the uh, the jury when they sentenced him to death. A lot of uh, the defendant's family were in the courtroom, and it, it it got a little hairy there for a while after they announced the death penalty. But uh, nothing really happened. But it did get a little tense in the in the courtroom. Mm -hmm. um, but today he's still on death row. Um, I, I don't suspect, you know, we're what, almost 13 years later, 12 years later, and he's still in prison. But the good thing is, it's my understanding, when you're sentenced to death, uh, you don't really have a lot of privileges like just a normal inmate have. Mm -hmm. So I don't think, uh, you know, he's having a great time in prison. So he's paying his dues. Right. And still has that coming, certainly. So from there, you know, um, we started honoring Dave. We did. We created a scholarship in Dave's mm. name through our officers association, which uh, we created a scholarship fund at Penn State for any uh, wildlife uh, uh, students. Uh, that was fully fund. That's fully funded um, for eternity. Uh, we did a lot of fundraising events. We did, um, you know, 5K runs, memorial runs for years, uh, a lot of different events to raise money in David's name. Uh, we have uh, we the, the the landowner where David was killed donated a little chunk of land right where he was shot to the game commission to erect a memorial. So there's a stone there and it has David's uh, a plaque with David's photo on it and a little history about what happened that night. Uh, and every year, uh, David's family hosts a, uh, a dinner uh, in the evening of um, 
November 11th, we all get together and kind of celebrate at a dinner. Then at right at the time, I think it's 1038 when David was actually shot, 1038 p.m., we go to the memorial site and do a little ceremony. And I, we've done that every year. And it really uh, helps not only keep his memory alive, but it, it's uh, very consoling to Dave's family. Throughout this whole event, I've got to know Dave's family very well. I feel like I know Dave very well. Also, we've we've kept Dave's family as part of our Game Commission family there. They're invited to all our events, as I'm sure every law enforcement agency tries to do that for an officer who's killed in the line of duty. Uh, but they're, they're still a part of our family, uh, and I'm sure they always will be. And we also try to keep Dave's memory alive by teaching uh, about this incident to our cadets. We we make sure that they spend. We I spend an well I did before I retired. Um, I spent an hour in there just going over what what exactly what we're doing here today. So they they know uh, the sacrifice that they've made and, and can appreciate that and learn that you know as, as conservation law enforcement officers sometimes we feel like we don't deal with the same exact dangers as traditional policing, but you know. And I know that that's not true. It, it can happen. And I think it's important for our people to realize that um, and that they take their training seriously. Dave did everything right that night. He, There's nothing in my mind, I've gone over this a lot, there's nothing that David could have done differently except maybe waited, and we don't know why he didn't wait. Maybe he had no choice. Uh, but the only thing that I believe would have saved David's life that night was a partner. Uh, if he had another officer there, I don't think that would have went down that way. Uh, there might have been a shooting, but I don't think it would have ended that way. Mm. Uh, who knows? But that's just my opinion. Yeah, because we always try to look at lessons learned. And I think the lesson here is to share David's legacy and it's it's comforting for officers in the academy to know what happens if there isn't a line of duty death that it occurs to them. It's comforting to know that your family's going to be it's, taken care of and what what what's happened before, even though it was uh, yeah you know it that night changed our agency. Hmm. Um, so before, I was a defensive tactic and tactics instructor for years. Um, and I remember when you're teaching handcuffing techniques and different other defensive tactic techniques, we would always say that it, people are going to realize that you're serious when you put the cuffs on them. They know mm. you're not joking and they're going. And that is exactly what happened here that night. This guy, David, got one cuff on him and he realized he was going to jail. And he, it wasn't about the poaching. It wasn't about the alcohol. It was about he was a convicted felon. He was on probation uh, and he knew he was going back to jail. Mm. And that's why he did what he did that night is because and you know, we, you just, as a law enforcement officer, you don't know what's going on in this person's life or in their mind. And that's what you have to prepare for every day is because you don't know what's going to happen. 
Um, and I remember as a defensive tactics instructor telling people that, you know, we've been very fortunate in the Pennsylvania Game Commission where we haven't had an officer killed in the line of duty, at least feloniously, uh, in, in I, I kept maybe a hundred years. Um, and I always said we, how lucky we were. And then you never know when it's going to happen. That's the thing about this. There's no way of telling, you know, when these incidents happen and you have to be prepared that, um, that's what I, I teach for a while after this incident happened is you have to, you can't wait until an incident like this happens to be prepared. And I think today most agencies are prepared. Uh, you have to know what you're going to do and how you're going to handle it uh, before it happens. And that's critical for wildlife agencies and any law enforcement agency. You have to be prepared for these things. Mm -hmm. For sure. Tom Grohall, retired Assistant Executive Director, Pennsylvania Commission, talking about the ultimate sacrifice wildlife officer David Grove gave on Thursday, November 11th, 2010. Thank you for your service, David, to the wildlife and the people of Pennsylvania and the United States.